Wellspring podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. How many folks we have in the room who appreciate history? That's quite a, okay, yeah. I, I, my hand would be up too. I, I appreciate history. There was a time in my life early, right out of high school, going into, I went to jun, uh, junior college to, started off with junior college to, uh, my intention was to be a history teacher. And then somewhere along the line, God kind of stepped in and redirected my life, and now I'm a history teacher, <laughs> telling his story, right? Yes. I like history. I know that there are just as many who don't appreciate history as some of us do. They just find it plain boring, I think. Why do I have to learn all these dates? The teenager complains to his parent, her parent. This is just old stuff that nobody cares about anymore. What's it got to do with me today are some of the things that these might say. A Harvard professor once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Paul understood that history, the history of Israel provided many important lessons for the church. Do you agree? Well, I hope you do. Calling their attention to Israel's wilderness wanderings, as we're going to see here in this 10th this chapter, you know, during the days of Moses, Paul warned that the Corinthian church risked repeating Israel's idolatrous mistakes and consequently lost their liberty needlessly during those wanderings and is concerned that the folks, the believers that at the Corinth church were in danger of doing the same. Christians who consider themselves mature must be careful not to confuse trust in God's grace with self-reliance. Rather than putting God's forgiveness to the test, we need to be much more concerned and seeing to it that we are focused on passing God's tests that he brings our way. So rather than our testing God, we must be concerned about following through and doing well with the tests that he brings to our lives. Paul, the wise master builder that he is or was, laid the foundation of, of the church in Corinth, then charged the believers there with the daily task, daily task of building upon it. Their job was simple like ours, build up the body of Christ. The problem was, however, that the Corinthian believers, as we have been seeing in our study in this letter, they had gotten caught up in building their own little dwellings. And by that, we mean their own lives, rather than being concerned about building up the body of Christ. They're building up their own thing. They're doing their thing. Right? 
They had forsaken the authentic fellowship of the body of Christ for self-centered focuses, listen to me now, that weaken and injure the body rather than heal and strengthen it. So beginning with the example of the Israelites in the wilderness, Paul urges the Corinthians to stick to the guidelines that God had given them to live by. And in doing this, Paul warns that the lack of self-discipline leads to sin. You agree with that? (laughs) Which results in consequences. And so apparently, some of the Corinthians thought that since they went to a church, were observing certain practices such as the Lord's Supper, that they were good. Hey, I'm hanging out down there and I'm doing some of the stuff that they do. I'm good. And so I can live however I want to live in whatever way pleases me. (laughs) Falsely thinking that they were safe from the fallout caused by sin. Paul urges that the way forward for the Corinthians, and it would be true for us, begins by looking to the past. Now, this is interesting because we often hear sermons and suggestions and conversations, rightfully so, that tell us how we need to be healed from things in the past and we need to kind of leave the past back there. And I agree with that. But there are certain things, however, that we are to learn from the past as we look back to them. Okay, And so that's what Paul is doing here as he uses the Israelites for an example for these Corinthians. Let's pick it up at verse 1. I'm going to read the first four verses. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Paul is concerned, to say the least, about the welfare of the believers in Corinth and realizes there is potential danger for them. The believers in Corinth who ate meat offered to idols, and as you can see that Paul is still kind of still connected to that conversation that we looked at back in chapter 8. It's still here. He's still talking about it. He's going to bring some further knowledge to this, more, more spiritual truth to that conversation. He's concerned that those who were engaging in partaking in of the the meat sacrifice to idols and doing that even at those pagan temples where that was taking place. They had a measure of knowledge, but Paul feared that they were ignorant, however, of the lessons of Old Testament history and the imminent dangers presented by idolatry practices. The the apostle explained these dangers by drawing two comparisons between the Corinthian Christians 
and the Old Testament Israelites wandering in the desert, as we've been saying. First of all, the Israelites, he says, were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. All the Israelites, young and old, male and female, faithful and unfaithful, were baptized into Moses in that way. So what does that mean? Well, for the Old Testament folks, it wasn't a water baptism as we understand it. It was a type of water baptism as we understand it. In other words, Paul is saying that those Israelites, because when they passed through the Red Sea, provided spiritual miraculous water, it was, a, it was symbolic, a shadow of that kind of baptism. And so they were simply immersed into the leadership of Moses called by God. Liking that to the Corinthians, and here's where he makes the connection, who were immersed under the lordship of Jesus, who was God. And so he makes that connection. He wants to do that because he wants the Corinthians to make sure that that history does indeed relate to them, just as it does for us today, folks. Okay? So beginning with the example of the Israelites in the wilderness, Paul urges the Corinthians to stick with that. And he says to them, what you see going on for them, it applies to us. It's relatable. Now, the use of the word baptize is, as I just said, simply meaning immersed in Moses, for us, immersed in Jesus. Paul points this out in order to identify Israel with the Corinthians, making his analogy here then very, very viable, okay? He strengthened this connection by referring to the Israelites as our ancestors. Did you see that? Did you, how many of you picked up on that? Who's he talking to here in this letter? Greek, Gentile, Corinthians. They are not Jewish. Yet he says they are our ancestors. I love that. I really, really do. In Paul's mind, there was indeed a connection that existed between the covenant people of God in the Old Testament Israel, and in the New Testament, the church, the New Testament church, which we are a part of today. That the Old Testament Israelites were the spiritual forefathers, if you will, of the New Testament believers, therefore connecting us to them. Okay, as far as God is concerned, we are connected. Now, I want to make a comment here before we go further. I have had more than one conversation with believers, individuals who have shared with me that they, they see a different God in the Old Testament than the one they see in the New Testament. And I, and I'm, I, you know, I am kind of like, what? The God that they see in the old, they have told me, is a mean God. Different from the one that they see in the New Testament, who is a nicer God. I so appreciate the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write this chapter, church. 
because Paul's references to key Old, text, Old Testament texts to explain God's character more than hints that there was not a disconnect between the pre-cross God from the post-cross God. God's character was not changed by Christ. It was revealed in Christ. There is no difference between the God of the Exodus and the God of the covenant, New Testament covenant in Paul's mind. And so having said all that, folks, there therefore is no Reason whatsoever, as Paul presents it in these verses, to doubt that the Old Testament scriptures remain authoritative for New Testament followers of Jesus Christ. They are not only informative for spiritual understanding, but instructive for Christian living. New Testament Christians are not free to take a few great grand ideas out of the New Testament era, such as love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, and then reinterpret them apart from the greater story of God. Amen? Secondly, the Israelites ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4. This food and drink were not ordinary, but spiritual. Now, that does not mean that Paul is saying that these items were non-physical. No, they were real, very physical. But he is suggesting and saying to us that they came from the Spirit and had spiritual sustaining power for God's people. Specifically, Paul is referring to, in verse 3, the manna that God provided Israel in those wilderness wanderings. For 40 years he did that, didn't he? He provided them at least twice through water-giving rocks, the living water, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. And then he says, Paul writes here, a spiritual rock, one miraculously provided, by the Spirit and empowering the people accompanied them. John explains that the manna foreshadowed Christ. We understand that. Jesus is what? The bread of life. John chapter 6. Here, Paul symbolically connected Christ with the water-giving rock. Is Jesus our rock? Yes. The rock was Christ. The water, of course, speaking of living water, spiritually living water. But that's not all that Paul sees here. It isn't the only connection he is making here, okay? Israel's spiritual food and spiritual drink were similar then to the Corinthians partaking of Christ's body. Rock, Christ's body, symbolized and, and, and drinking of the blood symbolized in the Lord's Supper, okay, in the, in the juice or the wine, whatever the case may have been. Paul is emphasizing here the similarity between the situation of the Corinthians 
and the Israelites, making that connection. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Five times in verses 1 through 4, I purposely kind of put emphasis on the word all when I read those first four verses. Five times Paul uses that word. Despite the experience of grace, and grace church was indeed in the Old Testament, wasn't just an, isn't just a New Testament deal, Despite the experience of grace enjoyed by all Israel, Paul is saying, God was not pleased with most of them. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that has got to be the all-time greatest understatement ever made. Scholars tell us there could have been as many as three million that exodusted. <laughs> Out of Egypt. Three million. Every one of you in the room knew know how many actually entered the promised land of that three million. How many? Do we have any mathematicians in here? Can you tell me what percentile is that? <laughs> I have no idea. Two out of three million. So when it says God was not pleased with most of them. Wow. <laughs> Paul mentioned this to draw attention. I think, and hopefully that would have gotten their attention, those Corinthians. And you know what? Hopefully Holy Spirit is getting a hold of our attention in this. So he makes the statement to draw attention to a similar possibility within the Corinthian church. All in the Corinthian church had begun a spiritual journey, if you will, in Christ. And all had participated in baptism and the Lord's Supper. But participation alone, Paul is warning, was no guarantee for receiving eternal life. That's a matter of the heart, isn't it? And so just doing things is not the same as believing and surrendering and devoting and repenting before a holy God. Once again, as we saw back in chapter 9 now, I want us to be sure on this and clear, Paul isn't suggesting that one could lose their salvation once they have truly have salvation, okay? And he teaches on this in Romans chapter 5 and also in Ephesians chapter 1. But he is saying, that not everyone who thinks they are saved, just because they're doing certain Christian practices, are saved. Paul knows that not all people who claim faith in Christ, who just, you know, yeah, I believe. I have faith. And just because they say it, they might think they have it. But there's no evidence, no fruit whatsoever that 
that is actually true. Paul knows saying, and thinking do not make a person safe and secure in Christ. They're just words. And words can be empty, amen? Saying and thinking are not the reality or the evidence of salvation. Again, a matter of the heart. The heart being given to Christ. And speaking then at that point, repentance and surrender and saying, my trust is in you versus in ourselves and self-reliance. Like many Christians today, most of the Israelites didn't understand that God doesn't just save us from something, in their case, Egypt, but he saves us for something, in their case, freedom in the promised land, in our case, freedom. And that's what he's been talking about in Christ. Paul's point Question mark there, Paul's point. Many who profess faith are living and will die in a spiritual desert. Why? Oh, they're thirsty, all right. Problem is, they've been drinking from the wrong well. And Paul's concern for the Corinthians that some of them may indeed be doing that very thing. Look at verse 6 now as Paul continues to bring example from that wilderness wandering. He says in verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things. As, and then notice, as they did. <laughs> Who's the they? Israel. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Just as Paul used the word all five times in verses 1 through 4, he uses a term, similar term, five times in verses 6 through 10. As they did, verse 6, as some of them were, verse 7, as some of them did three times in verses 8 through 10. Each of these examples drew attention to specific aspects of Paul's main concern in this passage. And what is that main concern? Idolatry. And in the Corinthians case, idolatry that was backed by demonic power. And that is his concern. That is the danger. We also are to learn lessons from the examples provided for us from God's word. One of which is, even though, church, we are set free, and even though we have freedom in Christ, here's the deal. Lust will mess us up. 
an example to be learned from the Israelites. Verse 6, drawing from verse 3, and is referring to Numbers chapter 11, where the Israelites got tired and bored with manna and began to what? Lust for meat. Let me just real briefly again, I want you to not miss the connection. The Corinthians were struggling with meat sacrificed to idols. The Israelites got tired and bored with the manna and now are craving meat as well. Paul is making a connection here, hoping the Corinthians can make that connection with him in this. Lust will mess us up. Israelites began to lust for something different than what God was providing in church. Can we just be honest here? Isn't that what lust is? Haven't a heart that is not satisfied with what God has given us. Wanting something or someone different. So God basically says to Moses, if it's meat they want, meat they're going to get. <laughs> Let me read to you from Numbers chapter 11. It tells us they, they would have the meat to eat. It says for all. Not for a day, not for a week, <laughs> but for a whole month. And then it says, until it comes out your nostrils. Now, I've been stuffed before, but I don't think I've ever been that stuffed. <laughs> until it comes out your nostrils, you're going to have meat. And then God says to the Israelites, and you're going to loathe it. <laughs> because, and here's the reason, because you see in their complaining and getting bored with what God had given them, God says, if this is bigger than just you not wanting the manna anymore, this is about you rejecting me. That's serious business, don't you think? It says, because you have rejected me, the Lord, who is among you and have wailed before me saying why did we ever leave Egypt have you ever found yourself kind of like oh it was so much fun back there in the old days the psalmist sheds further light on this for us in Psalm 106, verses 14 and 15, he writes, God gave them their request. And he's specifically referring to this incident in Numbers 11. God gave them their requests, but he sent, New King James Version, leanness to their soul. New Living Translation, he, spent, he sent a, a plague along with it. <laughs> NIV, but sent a wasting disease upon them. Can I just simply remind us all today? Complaining is not a good idea. Isn't that the way lust is, however, guys? 
gals, never satisfied. It brings leanness to the soul, weakness to the body. We will find out later on in chapter 11, Paul actually says the reason, because they're doing the Lord's Supper incorrectly, many of them have become sick and some have even died. Again, a connection to the Israelites. Weakness to the body and emptiness to the spirit. In verse 7, Paul gives a second warning to the believers in Corinth, which was not to be idolaters as some of them were. Referring to the Israelites, Paul has in mind the event here of Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. And he even quoted it to illustrate his point. By quoting the verse, Paul gives content to the temptation that he has in mind. The most pronounced act of idolatry that was committed amongst the Israelites during the wilderness wanderings was what? The golden calf event, right? Most pronounced act of idolatry. The golden calf event that took place at Sinai. An occurrence where idolatry led to uninhibited drinking that led to an all-out sexual orgy. You can read all about it for yourselves if you don't believe me in Exodus 32. Paul's use of the Greek word here in 1 Corinthians 10 for evil thing is, is the word paizo, which means to play. But not play like we might think of play, innocent kind of play. The word here refers to playing lustfully and sexually. And it does not suggest a mere lack of sincerity on the part of the Corinthians. Paul is warning the Corinthians to take this temptation to idolatrous eating seriously. It's like Paul is saying, man, you're messing with fire. Get away from it. Steer clear. And if you finish out that 32nd chapter in Exodus, you find out that eventually 3,000 died and a plague came upon them all who participated in that event. Verse 8 has a third example and is referring to Numbers chapter 25. Paul continues to warn against sexual immorality, referring to the time when 23,000 of them died in one day. And if you go and look at that, another thousand died shortly thereafter. Why? Because the Israelite men engaged in idolatry, involving themselves in fertility rituals and sexual immorality with the women of Moab. Fertility religions believed that participating in religious prostitution and orgies brought health and fertility and prosperity. The idolatry practice in Corinth, as we've already learned from our previous studies, was very similar, a very similar thing was taking place. You remember, they have the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth, which boasted of a thousand prostitutes hitting the streets every night. Paul's warning is plain. Eating meat sacrificed to idols could lead to sexual immorality. Again, Paul told us back in chapter 8, meat in and of itself is not evil. It's what it was involved with and intact in with where the problem was. 
to what some of the Corinthians were prone to do, as we saw earlier in our study. Paul says, make sure that your freedom doesn't lead to immorality, which leads to God's wrath, consequences, judgment. Folks, immorality is a killer. Would you agree with me on that? Immorality is a killer. It kills our marriages. It kills our families. It kills our witness. And it kills our joy as well. In verse 9, Paul gives a fourth warning to the Corinthians. Do not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. This alludes to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, where the people blasphemed God by not only complaining about the manna, but here in Numbers 21, they actually reject and say, they kind of do a, "Hmm, no more, I'm done with that, (laughs) to God with regards to the manna saying things similar to this, and we find this in Scripture. Why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? They cried and complained to Moses, actually complaining to God ultimately, right? We had it made back there in Egypt where there were onions and melons and leeks. I found out in my study this past week that in Egypt, at this particular time in history, onions melons and leeks did not exist. (laughs) They weren't even found in Egypt. (laughs) And so I'm left thinking, really, Israelites? Really, Church of God today? You're going to complain and gripe? And for the Israelites, how soon they had forgotten the labor, the beatings, the death, the slavery back in Egypt. How soon we forget. Apparently there were some in Corinth who were not satisfied with what Christ had given them. As as the Israelites before them who desired food other than man of the Corinthians desired meat so much so that they completely were disregarding all other considerations, namely causing others to stumble because of their total lack of concern for others in the body of Christ. Don't tempt Christ, church, because when you do, you're actually complaining against him. I don't recommend that. Paul, fifth warning in verse 10 is a direct command. Did you notice that? A direct command. Do not grumble. (laughs) Grumbling was the norm, it seemed like, rather than the exception in Israel. Let me go out on the limb here a little bit. How is it in your life? Complaining, grumbling, is it the norm or the exception? Search your hearts. The sheer number of references to grumbling (laughs) amongst the Israelites during that wilderness wandering makes it hard to determine if there is a specific experience that Paul is thinking of 
because it's throughout that 40-year existence in the wilderness. Nevertheless, the grumbling was directed at Moses, and as I said a moment ago, but ultimately to God. The same would be true for the Corinthians, grumbling against Paul, but ultimately against Jesus Christ. Please keep in mind, grumbling goes hand in hand with rebellion. Okay? The kind of rebellion the Israelites did, which brought death to all three million except two. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Similar to verse 6, Paul once again tells the Corinthians that the sins and judgments in the wilderness happened to them as examples and were written down for us as warnings. A little bit different from verse 6, what we find here in these verses is that Paul is saying, not only is it a warning for us, but they were recorded and written down for warnings for them as well, even for them then. Not just us, them as well. The apostle qualified his description of followers of Christ by calling them those on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, the Corinthians were living as we are living in the latter days. Meaning the responsibilities of those living in the age of Christ, the age of the New Testament church, the age of grace, as it's called, is greater than those of the Old Testament. By saying in verse 12, so if you think Paul is hoping to grab the attention of those who wrongly think that they are saved but may not be. Paul's point is not to sow seeds of uncertainty about faith. That's not his intention here, but to warn against taking God's love for granted without considering the consequences of not of, of taking it for granted. It is a warning against confusing self-reliance with trust. In God. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 3 don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In Corinth, these would have been the people who had confidence that they would never ever fall. These are those who thought they were strong and yet at the same time were the very ones who had put themselves in some deep, serious, dangerous jeopardy of demonic idolatry. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, and then 
What amazing words these are. He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Good message, right? Good words. After 12 verses of caution and warning, Paul gives this wonderful word of comfort. Reading and hearing of the Israelites' constant failures could have caused some of those Corinthians, even us, to think, <laughs> what hope do we have? Sin is so inevitable and it is so destructive. So God, through Paul, writes one of the most famous and most important verses of this entire letter. Your temptations, Paul is letting us know, are not unique. Others have faced the same temptations that you are facing. Others have resisted successfully. And Paul is saying, so can you. Because of God, who is in you and for you and who is faithful and will not desert you or fail to keep not even one promise for you. Our trust must be in him. Amen. And church, don't ever, ever forget this simple little truth and principle, God doesn't remove the temptation. And as Paul has just told us, he gives you a way out. Now, what is the way out of temptation? Does God send an angel to snatch us out of the situation? No. Does he cause the temptation to somehow miraculously just disappear? No. In Mark chapter 14, verse 38, Jesus tells us the way out. This is what he says. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Watch. Watch your heart. Watch your attitude. Watch the words coming out of your mouth. What are they saying and what are they reflecting about you? Watch the grumbling. Watch the complaining because God takes it personal. <laughs> you know what I mean by that, right? It's just rejecting him. It's basically you saying, God, I don't like the way you're getting things done in my life. Watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. We must not think that because the Israelites were under the law that their sins were worse than ours and got dealt with more severely. Listen to me, church. Sin in the church today is far more serious. Why? Simply because we have the example of the Israelites. Simply because we are living at the end of the age, as Paul has told us. I want to leave you with this thought. 
Something I want you to give thought to and prayer over and consideration throughout this day and the rest of your life, if need be. To sin against the law is one thing, but to sin against grace, well, that's quite something else. Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful for your word. And I hope, Lord, that you have grabbed our attention, just as Paul was hoping to grab the attention of those Corinthians way back there in the first century. God, I pray that not a one of us in this room would ever take your love for granted. I pray that for, if there's anyone here who has somehow slipped into this kind of thinking, that well, just because I'm attending church and maybe even participating in some of the stuff that they do, that I'm in a good place, I'm in a good shape. But if there hasn't been heart transformation, there hasn't truly been a laying down of our lives and a confession of our sins and a confession that says, you are Lord, I am not. <laughs> My trust is in you. Then wake us up, Lord, and may we do serious business with you. Not missing the examples that are before us, but paying heed to them. This is your intention. May we hear you, Lord, but may we also do what you say and tell us to do. May we be followers of Christ who are truly following you and not this world and not even our own ideas and plans and will, but yours, Lord, for the rest of our days. May it be you, all you, Jesus, all you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.